Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit as we prepare to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together this evening to study your word. We're thankful that you have revealed these things to us. Father, as we come together, we're just uh, grateful we have opportunities to serve you, that we have another week to focus upon you, to learn to uh, apply your word, uh, to learn to serve you, to learn to serve others, and to be a witness for you to all of those around us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we recognize that that we are not above the fray, but we live in the midst of the devil's world, and there's always adversity. As Job observed, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And this is a major theme in this epistle, and we need to learn how to properly focus and address the situation re- regarding our own uh, uh, adversity, the suffering we go through, the difficulties we face that we may do it in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're studying in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're shifting away from the part of the verse we focused on last week, that God has begotten us again. We looked at the doctrine of regeneration. We'll review that a little bit this evening. He has begotten us again to a living hope. And the concept of hope is related to inheritance, which immediately comes into focus in verse 4, that we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There are just a lot of different things that that Peter focuses on in this uh, particular section. And so tonight we're going to bridge those and begin to talk about the concepts that lie behind what Peter is saying, because they're often not fully understood. Now, most of you have uh, been pretty well taught over the last 10 years, and we've gone through this material before, so it's not new, but I've focused on it in some some fresh ways. So let's just look at the text a little bit. Starting off, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that the word here, eulogetos, it's translated blessed, has the idea of saying something good or praising God the Father. And what we're praising him for is basically his plan in the way he takes us from being spiritually dead, 
uh, giving us spiritual life and that that life is not just something for the here and now, but it is focused on a long-term plan that goes beyond time into eternity. And so Peter says, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again or caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what I want you to notice here is that these verses clearly focus our attention on the future. There's a movement from what God has done now to what it, it focuses on in terms of the future end game. So we're born again to a living hope, and as we've learned from a study of this word hope, it has to do with an expectation, something that we anticipate, something that we look forward to. And for the believer, it is a certainty. It is something that has a, a future reality that is so certain that it's as if it is present uh, for us today. Furthermore, this is related to an inheritance in verse 4 that is reserved in heaven. So the second phrase here uh, emphasizes a future orientation. And then the third phrase that gives us this future orientation in verse 5 says that this will be revealed in the last time. So that is yet future. That is not for today. So we're looking forward to something that as Peter develops this introduction, it's going to come back to strengthen us right now. So I want you to... Uh, just look down into the into the text as we read down through verses six through about verse fifteen or so, and see this interchange that takes place. This whole introductory sec- section keeps shifting back and forth from what you and I go through right now, the difficulties, the challenges, the adversity, maybe even to the extent of persecution, overt opposition, and difficulty, because we. We live in the devil's world. We live with fallen people. We live in a corrupt culture. And as a result of that, the more we seek to engage in terms of our walk by the Spirit and the more that we seek to move forward, the more we're going to face opposition. And it may be covert opposition, and it may be overt opposition, and it may even be intense opposition. But what we see here is is a, a way to focus on this thought process. So... If you look at verse uh, verse 6, uh, Peter will say, In this you greatly rejoice. That's a present time reality. In this, that is, the salvation that's to be revealed in the last times. In this you re- rejoice, though now for a little while, if, you, if, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So the present time is characterized characterized by going through adversity, by going through difficulty, and we don't know exactly what the difficulty was that these believers were going through. There are some who believe that this was some form of persecution from the Roman Empire. That is not likely at this early stage in the church age. What is more likely is, number one, these were regenerate Jews, Messianic Jews who had gone against 
uh, the drift of the Jewish culture at this point, which was to reject Jesus as Messiah. They've accepted Jesus as Messiah, and so they might be treated as outcasts by friends, by family, by co-workers, by business partners, uh, by their others that uh, are in the synagogue. We've witnessed the intensity of the persecution against uh, Peter and against uh, Peter when he's in Jerusalem and when he's in Judea, as well as the intensity of the opposition persecution to the Apostle Paul after he was saved. And as he took the gospel through the area of Galatia, South Galatia, which is part of the area where some of these uh, believers live, and as he moves from there, moves, and, and as um, Paul went to Greece, and he went to the different uh, Jewish communities in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and Corinth, he generated a lot of opposition from those Jewish communities. There was a large segment in many of those areas that responded to the gospel, but there was a larger segment that was opposed and expressed vehement, violent hostility uh, to Peter and his associates. And so that very well, I think, explains the kind of opposition that the recipients of this epistle would have received. They may have also faced a certain amount of opposition from those in the Gentile community as well towards the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Paul witnessed that in Ephesus. So they're facing rejection, they're facing hostility, they're facing opposition, and this is something I think as believers we have to prepare ourselves for in this world. We live in a bubble to some degree in Texas, but many of you are working in companies and you're in uh, different groups within this culture where you recognize the hostility that exists even here in God's country in Texas, that there are many people who really despise Christianity. They've given themselves over so much to their rebellion against God that they have a deep-seated antagonism towards Christians. And the more that our uh, government drifts away from the absolutes that were established in the Constitution that come out of a Judeo-Christian heritage, and the more they drift away from from any appreciation for the Bible or Christianity, the more they're going to feel the freedom to publicly express that opposition. And you can see elements of this just around the country. At, uh, for example, when the SCOTUS decision came down, in relation to the same-sex marriage decision, there were huge uh, gay pride parades all over the country, and some of the most obscene posters were were held up, and uh, things were said, and they suddenly had the freedom to fully vent and express their, their hostility towards Christianity. And this is something we're going to see. We've been on this trajectory in Western civilization since... Uh, actually, it started early in the 19th century. There was sort of a pause during the period between World War I and World War II with the uh, Depression, with the rise of the evil of the Nazis in Germany in World War II. But it began to reassert itself by the middle to late 50s worldwide, and especially in this, this country. And we've been on this trajectory, and apart from the grace of God, it's not going to change. We can't live in a bubble. We can't live in a fantasy world thinking that somehow we're going to just survive and it's not going to affect us where 
we see this American culture on the left coast and on the right coast when we look at what is happening in states like New York, uh, California, Washington, Oregon, uh, where they were 30 years ago is where Texas is now. There's that drift. So in 20 years, we're going to see a deterioration of the of uh, the residual effects of, of Christianity in America decline even more and more rapidly. It's it, the more we go downhill, the faster we go downhill, and that's not going to change. So we need to pre- be prepared in our souls for whatever is going to happen. But regardless of the direction of the culture as a whole, because we live in the devil's world, we're going to face opposition. We're going to face opposition either overtly from uh, from people who oppose us because we're Christians or covertly because in the devil's world, we may find it difficult to make a living. We may find it difficult to keep a job. The economy uh, could go bust and people can lose their jobs and lose their homes and lose uh, just with the uh, philosophy of money that is uh, that is standard for the uh, uh, Federal Reserve Bank, we could see the value of our savings deteriorate into nothing. There are so many things. I could stand up here and really paint a gloom and doom picture. But the focal point for us is in this, in this passage and as believers is on hope. The circumstances of the world around us should not impact us because our focus is on that which is superior that which governs the world, which is God, who is the one who is in control, and Jesus Christ controls history. So as Peter says here, we may be grieved by various trials now. Why? That's explained in verse 7. But then he says that this, there's going to be this testing of our faith that, if you look at the last part of verse 7, it fo- focuses on the future, that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's this shift from the present difficulty and adversity and persecution to the reality that this will change with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then we see in the next um, uh, in, in the next point is verse nine. Uh, we see that uh, there's a shift to the from the present time receiving the end of your faith. Uh, so that word there indicates the end result of your faith, and I think that's going to be faith in terms of the spiritual life. And then we get the salvation of your souls, and that's not talking about phase one, phase two, or phase, th- phase three salvation. That's talking about deliverance from the trials. That's talking about surviving and enduring the midst of these fiery trials that uh, Peter will say later on in, in chapter 5, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you, that we will be delivered. And we see this same phrase, the salvation of your souls, over in James uh, chapter 1, verse 21, and it has to do with the, the saving of our life today, deliverance in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty. And so... The focal point here is that as we go through our, our lives in time, we can focus on what God is doing and not on, uh, not on our personal agenda and our personal pleasure. And this kind of deliverance, and there's, that's going to be a whole another issue to talk about in terms of that first phrase in verse 10, the prophets 
have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and glories to follow. That's really the focal point of those two verses, is that Christ came to suffer. He went through horrendous, violent, brutal suffering at the cross in our place and for our sins with the result that glory followed. So it's adversity and then glory, not the other way around. So again, we see this shift from from present adversity to future glory. And then we look down at verse 13. Peter says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The present responsibility is to gird up, be sober, rest your hope fully on the grace brought to you when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it goes from present to the future that we're able to survive the present because of what's coming up, uh, coming up in the, in the future, resting our hope again, a future focus and future orientation fully on the grace of God. Then when we look, uh, down on, uh, a little further down, we're to conduct our, the time of our stay here in fear. At the end of verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that's going to be a causal participle because you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so you, you, and that, that whole sentence moves towards that future focus in verse 21, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Notice how these words, faith and hope and salvation, along with in, in inheritance, continue to manifest themselves throughout this whole section. It ties this whole unit together, and this, as we'll see, is the introduction to uh, what Peter is saying. It's a long introduction, much like the introduction to uh, James is about 21 verses. So this is, and, and we'll see a lot of similarities. In fact, when we get to verse 6, where we read, In this you greatly rejoice, the idea of joy there, uh, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, testing, uh, to the genuineness of your faith. What does this remind you of? It's the same vocabulary that we're going to, that we learned in James. Count it all joy. There's rejoicing. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing, that's the same word, the testing of your faith, uh, produces endurance. And the vocabulary is almost identical here to what James has. So it's the same idea that, that you can't avoid adversity in this life, but you can change the way you respond to it. It doesn't have to be something that destroys you inside and out, but it makes you stronger spiritually because we understand what God is doing and what the uh, what the framework is. And so the focus then takes us to verse 3 and this next phrase that we find in, in um, uh, verse 3, that he has begotten us again to a living hope. So we looked at this last time, looked at the uh, solution is that we're regenerated or we're caused to be born again. We make the decision to believe in Christ, but God is the one who does the work in regenerating us. And this is such a, a concept that is difficult for 
uh, many people to grasp today. As I pointed out last time, they're often confused about what regeneration is. And in fact, in some theological uh, traditions, it is viewed as an overarching term for everything that happens in salvation. In other theological traditions, it is the same as conversion, which then is not truly explained, or it's even seen as something that's synonymous with justification. But regeneration, as I pointed out last time, has a very specific meaning, and it means that something that wasn't in existence came into existence. Something is given birth to that wasn't there before. And when we look at the scripture, it has to do with a spiritual birth. And we have to understand that the Bible talks about man as basically composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. So in this chart, we have the human body. And the human body is in is controlled by our soul, an immaterial part of our nature. But it's not the only immaterial component for man. There's also something that we looked at last time, a spirit who is from God, 1 Corinthians 2.12. There's a distinct phrase used there where the preposition spirit from God, the from in the Greek is added. And in that phrase, as I pointed out last time, uh, spirit of God is the standard way to talk about the Holy Spirit. He's either called the Holy Spirit sometimes the Spirit of Christ, sometimes the Spirit of God, but the phrase focuses on uh, the, the Holy Spirit and his origin. It's just a simple article, noun, article, noun, construction, and the second uh, article and noun are in the genitive case, and it means the Spirit from the source of God. You don't need to add a preposition to get that meaning. There's one place where a preposition and only one place that that's used, and that's in 1 Corinthians 2.12, the spirit who is from God. And as I've pointed out, that word spirit is used five or six times in 1 Corinthians 2.9 through 14, and along with some related words like spirituality or the one who is spiritual. But here it's distinctive, and I think what what is being said is that at the point of regeneration, God imparts to us this human spirit. We are truly alive at that point. When Adam sinned, he lost that element. Something in his immaterial makeup either became non-functional or non-existent. And at the instant that he disobeyed God... At that instant, he became spiritually dead. So that Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, 1, that uh, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, if we're born, we're physically alive. So it's clear from that, that text that we have physical life, but we're spiritually dead. It, 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 there's no spiritual, uh, that something isn't animating us anymore. We may look like we're alive, but we're spoken about in the scripture as if we are dead. We're called dead. And so this has to do with uh, something in our inanimate nature. So when we trust in Christ, at that point, we're given this Holy Spirit. So this is our makeup. We have body, soul, and spirit, but we also have something. And I put this in here on the side for a particular reason is a sin nature, because I think that the corruption of the sin nature is inherently grounded in our body. 
we have phrases like the flesh, the Holy, I mean, the uh, sin nature is typically referred to by the Greek word sarx, which means the flesh. In Romans 6, it also refers to it as the body of sin. We're talk, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the fact that this is a body of corruption. These physical terms are used to describe the sin nature. But the sin nature does not, ex, does not in and of itself produce sin. It influences us. It is the source of temptation. And we have to make a decision that comes from our volition we choose whether or not we're going to respond to the sin nature. Now, as a believer, there are two sources of influence. There's the sin nature and there's the, uh, there's the Holy Spirit. I didn't put the Holy Spirit on this slide. There's the Holy Spirit who indwells our body and who fills us with his word. We have a choice, sin nature or Holy Spirit. Those are the two internal influences on us. When you're not a believer and you're spiritually dead, there's only one source of influence. That's the sin nature. Everything that is done by the unbeliever comes from that corrupt nature. Everything. He can, that doesn't mean he can't do good things. That doesn't mean they can't be nice and they can't be kind and they can't have a measure of integrity and that they can't... Uh, be wonderful people, and we all know unbelievers who are smart, who are kind, who have integrity. In fact, it's often been observed that some unbelievers have a lot more integrity and, a, and are a, a lot uh, kinder than many Christians are. And that doesn't mean that all Christians are. It doesn't mean that every unbeliever is kinder than any believer. But it does mean that even in our fallen nature, we can do relatively good things, but they are not uh, equivalent to absolute righteousness or perfect righteousness, which is what's required to have a relationship with God. And so regeneration is the adding of this immaterial component which enables the elements of our soul, our self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition to be restored, to have a relationship with God. And the term for that now is life. We are alive. There is a life to this. Jesus said, I came not uh, to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. That's what God is giving us. So there's a richness to this new life that we're to pursue. And sadly, many Christians just go on living like they're, like no, their life is no different from unbelievers and they wonder why they don't have this sort of richness to their life. And frankly, I think it's because they're not in, uh, they're, they're not filling themselves with the Word of God. They're not just saturated with biblical truth so that their focus, no matter what it is they're doing in life, their focus is ultimately uh, up upon the Lord. We looked at passages like Titus 3.5, that it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I charted it out this way. And um, that, that it's through the washing of regeneration and renewal. They're both washing, cleansing, renewal that's done by the Holy Spirit. Both regeneration and renewal are done by the Holy Spirit so that we become a new creature in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. There's new life there. Now, many of us have been Christians for many years, and we sort of forget that. And there are there are others who have become, uh, maybe they were believers when they were children like me, and they don't really have a frame of reference for a life as an unbeliever. But every now and then we get an opportunity to meet someone who comes to a an understanding of the gospel and believes in Christ when they're a little older, when they're in their 20s or they're in their 30s, and we see this incredible transformation that takes place when they get focused on the Word. But it's amazing how over a period of time we can become, we can all become complacent. We get to the point where we're used to this Christian culture that is around us and we lose sight of this radical difference that God has promised us. We are not like anybody else. We are radically different from everybody else because not only are we regenerate with new life, but we have God himself in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwelling us. And that's never happened before in history. And we've seen the baptism by the Holy Spirit break the power of the sin nature. We have been forgiven of sin so that it is canceled. The power of sin is canceled as we... Uh, sing in the hymn. And so we are new, these, we're new creatures in Christ. And, and as a result of that, the Holy Spirit is, verse 6 points out that the Holy Spirit is poured out on us. The word lutron has to do with the washing, not the pouring out. But he's poured out on us abundantly. Think about that. It's abundant. It is, that relates to sufficiency. It's more than enough. Now, I pointed out, pointed this out last time as we were closing, that if we look at this whole section, Titus 3, 4 through 7, look at the, the last two verses. The Holy Spirit, in verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, having been justified, past tense, that's when we trusted Christ as Savior, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, that is an interesting phrase. It is the verb genomai, which means to become something that we weren't before. And that could possibly mean, I mean, the grammar allows for this, that that we're not automatically heirs of eternal life, just that this is a potential that is ours. Now, a lot of people read this, that this means that we now have eternal life. But I think as we look at this doctrine of inheritance, that that in eternal life is not always just life everlasting, meaning that we don't end up in the lake of fire. But there's a quality there. This goes back to John 10.10 10, when Jesus said, I did not come to like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life, number one, that's that's when we get eternal life at the point of salvation, and to give it abundantly. So there's two levels of this life, two way to look at that life, the life that never ends and we spend eternity in heaven and the quality of that life. So there's two elements, quantity and quality. The first, Jesus said, I came to give life, that's quantity, and to give it abundantly, that's quality. And what what this passage emphasizes, and I think what Peter is emphasizing, is that we need to learn to develop that quality of life 
even when the circumstances around us aren't what we want them to be, even when the circumstances around us are going against everything that we want and desire and hope for because we're living on another standard, we're living for another uh, another purpose, and this is related to hope. We see this connection here between airship and hope. We're heirs according to a standard, heirs according to the standard of this hope of eternal life. Now, when we see the word hope, we have to think about what that means. Basically, it means a confident expectation. So we expect to have eternal life, which means that something is going on inheritance-wise, and that's a whole doctrine we have to look at, in order to focus us on what we're living for. So back to uh, our passage here. We've been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this concept of the resurrection and life is really important, fundamental, in a lot of passages of Scripture. Why does Peter put it this way? He puts it this way because the resurrection of Christ is the foundation for the Christian life. It is the death of Christ on the cross that pays the penalty for sin. The death of Christ on the cross is not related to sanctification. The death of Christ on the cross pays the penalty for sin so that we move from being unrighteous to righteous, unjustified to justified, spiritually dead to spiritually alive. But then he goes into the grave for three days, and in the resurrection, when you look at the resurrection passages, they all focus on the quality of life that is now ours. Romans 6.4 says we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So his death is related to the, the uh, our identification with him, and that's related to the loss of the power of the sin nature, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. See, the resurrection, Jesus is raised from the dead with a new body, and a newness of life in his humanity, and we are to emulate that at the point of of salvation when we are baptized by the Spirit, we are given this new life, and so we're to uh, we're to live that way. So we're born again to this living hope. The idea of life is present in Romans six four, and in First uh, Peter one three, it connects it to hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a an uncertain hope. It is a confident expectation. So let's take a minute or two to go through the basic points of understanding what hope is, to define it. Now, it's so important to understand terms. I've been reading uh, several different books lately on different things. I've gone through a lot of theologies on regeneration and reading about salvation and soteriology. And there are so many words that Christians use, that the Bible uses, that especially if we've been Christians for very long, we use these words, and yet a lot of Christians don't know what they mean, and unbelievers don't even have a clue. Words like believe, words like repent, not to mention justification, regeneration, and you're just going to lose somebody completely when you use the word propitiation because people don't have a vocabulary anymore. 
This is decried by English teachers across the country. So we have these, uh, we have to stop and think about what these words mean. Now, hope is the Greek word elpis, and two lexicons that are the foremost lexicons, I believe, that are available, the Bauer Danker Art Gingrich says that elpis refers to the looking forward to something with some reason for confidence respecting fulfillment. It's not just sort of an optimistic wish that, well, we haven't had any rain in three weeks now. I hope it rains tomorrow. I have a 30% chance in the forecast, and my garden desperately needs rain, and my yard needs rain. I hope it's going to rain today. I hoped it would rain today. We had a 30% chance of rain today, and on the way to church I saw that looked like people out to the west uh, out towards Highway 6 and Cypress were getting uh, a pretty good soaking, but didn't get anything down in, in, in the city of Houston or, or where I'm living. So it was just wishful optimism when I said, I hope it will rain today, and it's wishful optimism when I say, it will. I hope it will rain tomorrow. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. It uses in, it in the sense of a positive, certain expectation, something that is definitely going to take place. And so because we know it will take place, we can count on it and we can organize our priorities. We can organize how we spend our time. We can organize the energy that we spend. We can organize the training in our homes and in our families around this reality that is going to take place in the future. It's not something that's uncertain. It's something that is certain. Here are some verses that use the word hope. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, that's very similar to what we read in 1 Peter 1.3, that we are born again to a living hope, and this is further described as as this inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, so that hope is related to our heavenly destiny. Titus 1-2 connects it again to eternal life. So Titus uh, Titus 3-7 connected it to eternal life. Uh, Titus 1-2 connects it to eternal life. It's the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That's another thing we see, is that hope is connected to God's promise. God's promise is connected to God's character. So if we're going to read the Bible honestly, and we look at the character of God, then we see that behind those promises stands a unique person who isn't like any creature. He is absolutely faithful, and he is going to fulfill any promise that he makes. Titus 2.13 uses the word that we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. This is, this is Jesus Christ. This is such a great verse. It relates to the rapture. What we're anticipating right now is something that is certain. It's the return of Christ. Jesus is going to come back for us. We know this is going to happen. We just don't know when it's going to happen. That's the doctrine of imminency, something that is going to happen 
at any, and it could happen at any moment. We just don't know when. So we always have to be ready for that to take place. We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. So once again, that hope that is in the future motivates present behavior. It affects present behavior, present decision making, present values. First Peter one twenty one is going to use this phrase again, that through uh, who through him that is through Christ believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope connecting those two together, faith is evidence of things not seen and so is hope. Both of them are unrelated to things that we see right now. Your faith and hope are in God. And then 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that this hope is to be so evident in us that people realize that we are, unlike anybody else, hopeful. Christians should be hopeful people. Hopeful in the sense that people don't look at us and go, you're a sourpuss, you're pessimistic, you're negative. They're going to look at you and go, why are you different from everybody else? You're just so hopeful. It's a certain kind of optimism. And the assumption that Peter makes is that people are going to ask us why we're hopeful. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, that is, in your thinking. Heart often refers to thinking, and the thinking part of the soul. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. That's even before you have your first cup of coffee in the morning, isn't it? Before you even think. Always be ready to give an answer that's a reasoned defense. This term, apologia, was a legal term for what a lawyer would do in the courtroom to defend his client. He gives a logical, rational explanation of why he believes. He doesn't just throw Bible verses at somebody, but he sits down and explains what those mean and why he believes what he believes. And sometimes that takes a long time. It might take two, three, four, five, six, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty years as you dialogue with somebody and help them understand why you believe what you believe. And, and that can try our patience. Often, until a person trusts in Christ, we may probably think that they're going to reject him. Certainly anybody who knew the Apostle Paul was going to be surprised when he trusted Christ. People who knew the Apostle Paul, even believers, that's the last person who's going to get saved. Even when he was saved, when he came around believers, they didn't want to have anything to do with him because they thought he would throw them in jail. So we, there, there's a change there that takes place, and we need to be ready to give an answer, a reasoned, logical explanation for the hope that is in you without getting arrogant about it and without getting prideful about it and without getting defensive about it. Now, those are three hard things to do, and I don't think we can really do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Some of us just have personalities that trend towards being defensive and aggressive when somebody challenges us. And we think that anybody who says, why are you a Christian, is automatically a personal confrontation. And so our response is not necessarily out of meekness and fear. Two words that are to characterize humility and submission to the authority of God. So we are always to be ready. And we're going to take some time to talk about apologia and what real apologetics is all about. 
when we get to that particular verse. So uh, hope basically means a positive expectation. Second thing, hope then for the believer is a confidence, a, a solid confidence about the future uh, with the Lord that comes back. See, we, we're so focused on the future that it, it sort of ricochets off of Jesus Christ back to us and, and gives us uh, encouragement. It strengthens our faith. It stabilizes us in the midst of difficulty when we start getting hopeless. That there's, I don't know, I can't see what's going to happen two days, three days, two weeks, three months, five five months down the line. I, I work in a job in the oil industry. Things are going in the wrong direction right now. Prices are going down. I may not have a job in six months. And then we start getting all negative. Uh, it's not like God is out of control. We don't think there's hope. But our hope isn't built on the economy. Our hope isn't built on the price of oil. Our hope isn't built on any of these circumstantial factors. It's built on the truth of God's word. And so as we come to understand our, our expectation that God's in control of our life, and that's what Scripture is all about, this call to discipleship that is such a theme in, in Matthew is just a recognition that God is saying you're mine now and you need to live that way. And are you willing to do that? Or are you going to keep fighting and keep uh, reacting to what I'm trying to do in your life? Because I'm not going to stop trying to do what I want to do in your life. So you can either uh, start uh, submitting to me or we're just going to have a wrestling match like Jacob and the angel. We're just going to have a wrestling match for the rest of your life. What are you going to do about it? So... We have to focus on that. So hope is an objective optimism that is not to be shaken by present circumstances, no matter how bad they might get. We just have to understand that sometimes God uses negative circumstances to produce godly character in us, and God may also use negative circumstances in order to give us opportunities to witness to people in ways that they never would have heard it. One of the most fascinating stories, I've got a doctoral dissertation Mitch Glazer wrote uh, at Biola about evangelism and messianic evangelism among the Jewish community in Eastern Europe in the early 20th century. There were some communities where, according to his research, where 50 or 60% of the Jews became Messianic in the 20s and the 30s. Now, guess what happened to those Jews? Where were they in 1940, 1942, 1943? They went through some incredible suffering, but guess what? When they were placed at Auschwitz, when they were on the train to Treblinka, when they were sent to these other camps... Guess what they had the opportunity to do? They had the opportunity to give the gospel to hundreds of other Jews during that time, and they did. In fact, estimates run that uh, somewhere between 100,000 and maybe 400,000 Jews who were rounded up in the Holocaust converted to Christianity as a result of the witness of other Jews. But just imagine if you're one of those Jews who's a believer and you're being rounded up, the doubts that you might have about, God, what in the world are you doing in my life? 
I trusted in Christ. Why am I being persecuted? I'm not Jewish anymore. I'm a Christian. And the Lord said, well, I saved you for a purpose. I'm going to put you through the worst suffering that my people have gone through so that you can glorify me and be a witness. You have to change the way you think about why you're here on earth. We're not here for our personal pleasure and to fulfill our personal ambitions. We're here to serve the Lord. We are ambassadors for Christ, and all of the other stuff is merely distraction and it's secondary. We're here for a radical purpose. And so when bad things happen that are really bad only because they somehow get in the way of us doing what we think we want to do, and God is using that to do what he wants to do in terms of conforming our character to Christ and giving us an opportunity to witness. And so what gets us through those times is having that certainty, that optimistic certainty that God is in charge, he's preparing me for something in the future, and I need to learn to orient my thinking right now to his plan. That's called doctrinal orientation. Third point about hope is that the unbeliever can have a counterfeit hope. He can manufacture something that's uh, about the future. He comes up with his dreams, his hopes, but ultimately they can't have any uh, they, they can't have any foundation for his life in the here and now because he he may manufacture these dreams for his future, but when they are wrecked upon the shoals of reality then there's nothing there. Our hope never gets wrecked on the shoals of reality. Our hope is the only hope that provides stability. So fourth point, it's transformational. This hope is to transform our life. I pointed this out, 1 Peter 3.15. It makes us different, and that difference should be evident to people around us. We need to think in terms of God's plan and not our plan. Fifth point, our confident expectation is related to our understanding of our new life in Christ. Well, I don't understand my new life in Christ. Well, you need to read your Bible. You need to be in Bible class. You need to be studying over and over again. You need to get whatever kind of MP3 player you need, and you need to be listening when you're working out need to drench your soul in the Word of God. And I mean drench your soul in what I teach. Drench your soul in the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't listen to someone who can truthfully expose the Scriptures and expound the Scriptures so that God the Holy Spirit can use that in your life. But it's the Word of God that is powerful. It's the Word of God that accomplishes its purpose. It is God's word that changes people, and so we need to be involved with that. And that's what gives us a confident expectation as we orient to God's plan. And this gives us a hope related to our eternal life in Titus 1-2. It's a confident expectation. We're just in the antechamber. We're in the entry hall. Uh, We're in the vestibule of our lives. This is a drop in the ocean compared to the life that we have to live with our Lord that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Except we're so finite, all we can think of is getting through tomorrow or the next day or the next week, and we lose sight of the fact that 
that this is minor, that what we're going through now is really preparatory. It's preparing us for that future role, that future destiny that we're going to have with the Lord. And we need to get our head out of the darkness and into the light and focus on God's plan. And we need to train our children that way, and we need to train our grandchildren that way, and we need to learn to quit thinking like unbelievers and to think like believers. For the believer, this is grounded in understanding who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. The believer that, uh, for the believer, this is grounded in the present and dwelling of Christ. We need to understand uh, this. Colossians one twenty seven. Uh, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have the richness of the indwelling of Christ. We have a new identity in Christ that is to shape how we think about the world around us and the circumstances. And that this is related to this future inheritance. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Most of us, our hopes and dreams are related to things that won't last. To cars, to financial investments, to security for our retirement to looking at uh, things related to improving our health. These are all things that are temporal. To, to having enough financial resources to enjoy all the hobbies and toys that we want that will make life enjoyable. Those are great. But they're going to fade away. Five years from now, you'll be interested in something else. Ten years from now, you're going to have so many body aches, you can't do what you wanted to do. 20 years from now, uh, it's going to be a different set of problems and that what you really wanted to do 20 years earlier just isn't important to you anymore. But the one thing that never changes is that eternal destiny that God has for us. And so we're going to have this inheritance that doesn't fade away. That's what we should be working toward. That's what we should be thinking about. And this is all related to the doctrine of inheritance. And this runs through this whole chapter. We look at verse 4. It's where this living hope is toward something, an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for us. It's related to this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. It's uh, ready to be uh realize this glory at the revelation of Christ in verse 7. Uh, and all, all through this section, it's all focused on these future glories that will come. That's our orientation. So we need to learn to focus on the future because it's real. And the more real it becomes to us, the more transformative it is today. And I think one of the reasons a lot of Christians never seem to really have any victory over sin in, in their Christian life is because they're still so consumed with the here and now that they haven't focused enough on Jesus for the word to be transformative. Jesus becomes secondary in their life, Whether and, and what the scripture says is Jesus should consume our lives. He's not just something else that we do. 
everything that we do should be organized around that role that we've been called to in the body of Christ. So next time we'll come back and look at the doctrine of inheritance. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of our hope that this is positive, it's optimistic, we're living for tomorrow, that no matter what happens today, it really doesn't matter. Politics will change, economics will change, uh, circumstances related to health and family and friends are all going to change because we live in a changing, ever-changing world. But you never change, and our inheritance is not going to change. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to build our lives around that which is uh, totally stable and unchanging. And the only way we can do that is to just be immersed and saturated by your word. May we respond to this challenge. In Christ's name, amen.